as I was going over the study last night and thinking about Paul and his many missionary journeys, I, I began to wonder how far did Paul actually travel as he spread the gospel, gospel throughout uh, really uh, Asia and Asia Minor. So I jumped online and just Googled it because that's what we can do nowadays. 10,000 miles Paul traveled sharing the gospel. And then I got to wondering, what gets into a man that he's willing to abandon his former life, a former life that promised success, approval, renown within his Jewish community? He was on the fast track to become, becoming a very well-known and acclaimed Pharisee. What gets into a man that causes him to abandon that life of comfort and wealth and live a life of poverty, traveling the world, sharing the story of a man we know as Jesus Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul talks about some of the things that he has endured. He says, In labors I have been more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep meaning that he spent 24 hours on open water. Verse 26, And journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst in fastings often, in cold, in nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That's the life Paul chose. And again, what gets into a man that causes him to abandon a life of comfort for that kind of life? And I think we'll see the answer to it as we study chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. Now in chapter 2, Paul reminded the early church of his conduct. He reminded them of his witness, if you will. Now, again, if you're new to the church, we sometimes use words that we don't use in everyday life. We call it Christianese. And I'm sure we don't talk about our witness very often when we're at work or at school. But when we're talking about our witness, we're talking about the story that our lives tell. Not just the words that we share, but the story that our lives tell to all those who are watching us. The way we serve our spouse, the kind of employee that we are, the kind of student we are, the respect that we show those who are in authority, the way that we treat those who are lesser among us or defined in our culture or in our society as less than. That's our witness. All of our lives are telling a story. 
And Paul says, remember the story that my life conveyed to you. He says, we spoke to you not to please people, but rather to please God. We didn't use flattering speech. We didn't come with greedy motives. We didn't seek the approval of people, but we cared so much about you that we shared not only the gospel, but our lives with you. We encouraged, we comforted, we implored each of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul reminds them, this was my witness. This was our witness to you. And then he reminds them of their own conversion. He says, when we were with you and we shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, you received the word of God which you heard from us. And you welcomed it as truth from God, not from a man, but from God himself. And you became imitators of the early churches, sharing in the common sufferings of persecution. You willingly followed Jesus, allowed him to transform your lives, and stepped into the common persecution that was taking place widely amongst the early churches. Paul says, I know that people from your own country have turned on you, just as the Jews turned on Jesus and the prophets and on me. We share, Paul says, in the sufferings of that same persecution. And then finally, Paul tells them in chapter 2, I long to see you. After we were forced to leave you, we made every effort to return to you, but Satan hindered us from coming back to you. And we didn't, we, we, don't, we don't exactly know how Satan hindered Paul. All we know is that Paul deeply desired to visit them again. And he was prevented by whatever trial or tribulation the accuser brought along his way. But regardless, Paul rejoices in this community of believers. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For who is our hope? Who is our joy? Who is our crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. And that's where we're going to pick things up. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. So Paul writes, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, We thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish and encourage you concerning your faith. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul, again, is reminding them of his witness, their salvation, and then he's giving them a look at really what was going on behind the scenes while he was away from them. He said, man, I just could not endure not knowing what was going on in this church that I had planted, I had established through the Spirit of God, but I was chased out of town, and I only got to be with you for about a month, and I needed to know what was going on in the church. I cared about you. So I sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, 
and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we should suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So there's a phrase that's repeated twice in those first few verses. I could no longer endure it. What Paul is saying is, I just couldn't stand it anymore. I just couldn't stand it. What couldn't Paul stand? His deep concern for the church, something he expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. My deep concern for you. This is the motivation of everything Paul did. We ask, why did he travel 10,000 miles to share this message of hope found in the name Jesus Christ? Because he loved God and he loved people. That may sound so simple, but this is a supernatural kind of love. He was so deeply concerned about their spiritual well-being that he was willing to endure all the things that we read. William Barclay points out that the heart of Paul is the very essence of the spirit of a pastor. Deep concern for the people. Deep concern for their spiritual well-being. And his concern for this church and the uncertainty of their condition, it became so unbearable to him that he was willing to give up one of his chief co-laborers in Christ. Somebody who was a, an asset to his ministry, a blessing to his ministry. He sent young Timothy. But let me, let me point something out here. Paul didn't need to worry. I mean, think about this for a second. We already know what the condition of the church in Thessalonica was. They were excelling. Paul says, I learned about your labor of love. I learned about your works of faith. I learned about the hope that was in you. And I was encouraged by it. They were excelling in the midst of persecution. So, so as I was studying, I realized Paul wasn't omniscient. Paul didn't know everything. Paul was human. As close as he was to the Lord, he didn't have all of the answers. And you know what? That is okay. We live in the information age where I can ask you how old Kevin Durant is. And you can pull out your phone, and even though you don't know it, you can find it out in an instant. Where we have information available to us at our fingertips. One thing I've noticed is we become very uncomfortable with the idea of not knowing something. We don't like not being in the know. We are drawn to people who seem to have all the answers, and they speak confidently about world events. Because things seem so chaotic today, we are drawn to people that seem confident about putting the pieces together, if you will. But let me remind you, 
our understanding is finite. What we know is finite. We need to be comfortable with these three words. I don't know. I don't know. Guys, we're human. There is so much that we don't know. And it's okay to acknowledge that. I don't know. Because those words can always be followed with these words. But I know who does. Hey, I don't know what's going on. But I absolutely know who does. That's okay. That's a good thing. Here is Paul. He's so worried about this church that he can't sleep at night. And he sends Timothy. But what does Timothy tell him? There's nothing to worry about. Paul says it was better to be left alone in Athens. He's implying here that there was great difficulty in Athens. It wasn't an easy place to share the gospel. It was kind of like America today. There was polytheism, worship of many, many different gods. There was prosperity. So this idea, hey, why do we need God when things are going so well in our lives? I'm not wondering where my next meal is coming from. In fact, I have more than what I need. What do you mean I need God? He's a, what do people say today? He's a crutch. And then there was this intellectual arrogance where people would gather together just to talk about the next new thing. And the only reason they were interested in hearing from Paul is because he brought something new to the table and they liked hearing about these new ideas, not because they wanted to give their lives to the Savior of the world. That's what Paul was up against. It was a, a society that was hardened to the idea of a need for a Savior. And I'm sure Timothy was a valued member in the work that Paul was doing there in Athens. But Paul says, it was more important for me to be alone here and send Timothy than it was to have Timothy stay with me because I needed to know about your faith. So I decided to be left alone. And look at Paul's description of Timothy. He first calls him his brother, his brother in Christ. But then he says he's a minister of God. Literally translated, he's God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And that may seem simple, right? But Paul doesn't say he's my co-worker. He says he is God's co-worker in the ministry of Christ. I, I love that. And let me tell you why. Because that is the story of Scripture. When people talk about a relationship with Jesus, what are they referring to? I know we're not supposed to talk in church. But when you think about a relationship with Jesus or a relationship with God... What type of relationship is it? Yell it out. What comes to mind when you think of a relationship with God? Father and Son. Father and son. Awesome. I thought it was going to be silent for a long time because people are so uncomfortable to speak out. Father, Son, Jesus is our brother, friend, James, teacher, good. What's that? Comforter. Comforter. Good. 
provider, overseer, counselor. I mean, we could go on and on. But one thing we don't think of, because how could we elevate ourselves to this position? We don't see ourselves as co-workers with God. How could we? God in His infinite knowledge and power and love and to call us a co-worker, but that's been the story of Scripture from the beginning when He invited Adam and Eve to tend to this garden that He had made. And He told Adam and Eve to care for this world, to go out into the world and do what? Populate it. Create. He invited them in to a relationship with him where they shared in the work that God was doing in the world. Now, ultimately, they rejected that. And sin entered the world. But that's been the story of Scripture. Abraham, he invites Abraham to leave his town and go to a place that he would tell them because he's going to do a work through Abraham's descendants and he's going to call the Israelites to be a reflection of his heart and be a testimony to the pagan nations around them. Why? Because he needs people? That's the same reason I love to have my sons and my daughter come alongside me while I am working. It's not because they can do something better than I can. It's because I just love being with them. You guys have been there before, right? When dad would have you hold the flashlight while he worked. Sometimes it's easier for dad or mom to do it on their own because they can do it much quicker and much better. But we just like being with our kids. Did Jesus need the apostles? Does God need the church? No, but he wants to engage with us. And he calls us his co-workers. So I love that description of Timothy. He is not a co-worker of Paul's. He's a co-worker of God. And he gets to share in what God's doing in, in this world. And he sends Timothy to do what? To strengthen and encourage the church concerning their faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. So again, what, what is left to be done in, in this church? The gospel's already been preached. Many have come to faith in Christ. Why is Paul concerned about sending Timothy back to a church that the gospel has already gone out and people have already come to know Christ? What else needs to be done? Remember this, the work of the gospel is continual throughout the life of a believer. It's not just a one-time event where we accept that invitation to become born again and we believe in Christ's death and resurrection and accept Him as the Son of God and the provider, protector, friend, co-worker that He is. But the gospel continues to work itself out in our lives. And we learn here that 
Paul wants to send Timothy to continue to encourage in the gospel so that they will be able to endure trials and heartache and remain steadfast in their faith and that the gospel would continue to work in them so that they may endure. Well, what does that look like practically? Some of you guys right now, as you sit in these chairs, your faith has been shaken. If you were honest today, you would say, I'm having a hard time believing the promises of God. Maybe I'm not doubting the existence of God, and I'm not doubting my salvation, but I have a difficult time believing right now in this moment that God cares deeply for me. That's what Paul was deeply worried about in this church that because of how difficult things had become in this region and because of how difficult things had become for the apostles, Paul and Timothy and his co-workers, that the early church would look at them and say, well, why isn't God doing more to protect them? And if that's where you are this morning, if you're at a place where you could honestly say, yeah, my, my faith is on shaky ground right now. I'm having a, a hard time taking God at his word. I want to remind you of what he did for you. He gave you his only son. He gave you Jesus. And I want you to set your mind on that cross. Because God became man. And he took your sin upon himself. And he endured unimaginable affliction. And he died on that cross. And he did it because of you, because he loves you. And then he defeated death. And then he sent his church out into the world to tell that story so that we could gather together today and celebrate what he has done for us. That's how much he loves you. Don't let your circumstances shake your faith. Let the gospel shape your faith. That's why Paul is sending Timothy to remind them of what God had done for them. That's what it means to be uh, strengthened. Paul says, I don't want you to be shaken by your afflictions, Because we told you that you would suffer tribulation and that we would suffer tribulation. This shouldn't come as a surprise to you, Paul says. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. See, that's the problem. And I know I talk about the false gospel of prosperity that the church has bought into today often, but this is my concern with it. It leaves people sorely unprepared for the suffering that is common in this fallen world. The health and wealth gospel that is simply a false gospel, it leaves people unprepared for the difficult times that will come. Not if they come, when they come. And we begin to doubt God because of some strange gospel that we received. But the truth is, in this world we will face trouble. But be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome 
this world. And Paul repeats, I couldn't stand it. I was concerned about your faith. I was worried that somehow the, temper, the, t- the tempter had tempted you and our work among you had been in vain. Okay, let's do some more participation. When you think of temptation, what comes to mind? Some of you are thinking something. You're like, I can't say that in church. I'll say it. Sexual temptation. I think that's one thing that comes often to mind when we think about temptation. What else comes to mind when you think about temptation? Food. Hey, let's, come on. (laughs) It's getting too close to home here. Temptation. What else? Talk. Guys, I'm done. What else? Wealth, power. I heard something. Gossip, temptation to elevate ourselves above others. More money. What else? Deceit. Deceit is a temptation to be more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks. That's usually why we deceive, right? What else? Guitars. Again, you guys are... So there's a lot of things that come to mind when we think about temptation. But here's one area that I think the enemy loves to operate in, and we don't often recognize it. And this is what Paul's talking about. One of, we know that one of Satan's favorite tools is fear. Remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. The enemy loves operating in fear because it's in that fear he can tempt us to take back control of our lives. It's in that fear that he can have us take our eyes off of Jesus and begin to try to navigate this life on our own because we want something tangible. We want to be in control again. We don't know if God's actually going to be there when we need him most. And the more out of control our lives feel, the more we're tempted to take control for ourselves. You ever been in that place before? We're told to wait on the Lord. And he'll renew our strength. But when there's fear, as Pastor John says, when it's 11.59 and counting, there's a temptation to stop waiting on him, to stop depending on his direction, and then begin to do whatever's right in our own eyes. And you see this really throughout the Old Testament. If you remember Abraham and Sarah, what did God promise them? You're going to have a child. And then they hit 99 years old. How how can this be? How can we have a child at this age? So Sarah offers her servant Hagar to Abraham. Because they were afraid that they couldn't trust in God's promises. Oh, they could trust in His promise for a little while. But what about when things looked a little bit dark? And it looked like God wasn't going to come through. That's that temptation. We stop believing. The Israelites in the wilderness, they're delivered from Egypt. 
They're told that God would guide them into the promised land, but it's taking too long. Moses has been up on the mountain for too long. He's not coming back down again. Aaron, make an idol for us. Give us something tangible. This God that we're serving, he seems like we can't control him. So make us a God that we can control. Throughout the book of Kings, we've been studying. And last Wednesday night, we read about Hezekiah, who was a good king. He tore down all the places of idolatrous worship, reinstituted worship of the one true God. But when the king of Assyria began to bear down on the nation of Judah, he was afraid and he began to make deals with the devil. See, Paul's worried that in the midst of their own persecution, that the early church is going to lose hope. And so he sends Timothy to remind them of the promise that God has not given them a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, and that they can trust him and he is good. And that's why we gather together, because some of you today, your faith is shaken, and we're here to remind you that God is still good and he's all-powerful and you have not been forgotten. He cares deeply about your situation. And if you're in that place, I encourage you, talk to somebody. After service, come and talk to us. It's not that our job is to convince you of something that you don't believe. It's simply to point you back to Jesus. And that's why Paul sent Timothy to remind them of the promise. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not forgotten you, but he is shaping your faith. I was thinking about kind of where the church is today and what our role is in this world that, again, seems so out of control. And I understand there's an increased appetite today for commentary on current events. And there's a lot of pastors that are dedicating a good amount of their, their sermon time to kind of connecting the dots with uh, biblical prophecy and and the things that are taking place today are just spending time talking about Chinese air balloons and things like that. And, and that's, that's fine. But I have heard a few times, hey, pastor, why don't you spend more time on current events and the things that are, are going on in the world? Not that I'm opposed to that. And talking one-on-one, I'm, I'm happy to talk about those things. But our time together on a Sunday morning is limited. And I am far more concerned about our witness in these last days than I am being up to date on the latest headlines. I don't want us to lose sight of the Great Commission, regardless of the global climate. I'm not saying that that's not important and the pastors that spend a great deal of time are doing something wrong when they they spend a lot of time on current events. But for me and what I believe I've been called to I'm reminded that there's a reason Paul's letters are timeless. Because despite the ever-changing landscape of world events, God's character never changes. And his purposes and his plans for the church, they do not change either. 
That's why we can study Paul's letter written 2,000 years ago and say, yes, that applies to us because he is dealing with a God who does not change. And I am far more concerned about us being prepared to be witnesses in a world that is chaotic than I am to look at every new headline that comes out each week. Paul's letters are timeless. I think of listening to Pastor Chuck not that he never got into world events, but very often you can put a Pastor Chuck teaching on from 1980 and you can say yes and amen because he is dealing with the unchanging nature and character of God and his plan for the church. Paul spends very little time on the specifics of the persecution and the specifics of the opposition, the who, what, when, how, and why, the names and the places. He doesn't spend a lot of time on that. He's far more concerned about how the church is responding to the opposition. And that's why he says, sends Timothy to strengthen the church in their faith. That's what I'm concerned uh, of, about for myself and for, for you from a pastoral perspective, that we don't lose sight of what we've been called to, to be a witness in this world that needs hope. So he sends Timothy, but Timothy comes back. And what does Timothy tell Paul? Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and he brought us good news of your faith and your love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord, for what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So what news did Timothy bring back to Paul? Paul said, I couldn't stand it. I sent Timothy to you. I was worried about your faith. And he came back and he told me that you are continuing to trust in Jesus. And that your love is abounding. Your trust in Jesus endures and your love for God and one another hasn't failed. So again, if we go back to verse 5, remember Paul said, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might have been in vain. Paul, Paul was worried that they would have been tempted to stop trusting Jesus and stop loving one another. Again, when we think of temptation, we think of sexual sin, we think of greed, we think of money, but understand that this is what the enemy is trying to do in our lives. He's trying to tempt us to stop trusting and stop loving. And you may ask, how in the world can the enemy tempt us to stop loving? It's the temptation to allow our circumstances to diminish our care and concern for one another. 
It's the temptation to hold on to wrongs and to stop forgiving and to become hardened and to put up walls to protect ourselves because we're not going to be hurt again. This is the reality. People hurt people, right? Church hurt is very real. But the temptation is then to put up walls to protect ourselves because we're not going to be hurt like that again. And what does that do? That gets in the way of what we've been called to as born-again believers of Jesus Christ. That's the temptation. The suffering and the opposition and the trials of everyday life, we can become hardened to one another. And that's a danger. That's a very real, real danger that we live in. It's a temptation of living in a fallen world when we begin to justify our lack of love and care in the name of self-preservation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever experienced this in your own life where you've hardened your heart towards, I mean, this is happening so much today where people won't return to the church because they were hurt in the church. What is the church? Is it some faceless organization that, that can't be identified? No, we're the church, you and I. And the enemy's having his way in the lives of those who have been hurt in the church because now they're building walls and they're un unwilling to be a part of a community of believers who are far from perfect, but they're supposed to be together. They were created to be with one another. That phrase, one another, appears in the New Testament over 300 times because we were created to be with one another. And again, I'm not saying church hurt isn't real because it absolutely is. And sometimes that hurt runs deep. But if it causes us to put up walls with one another, we're missing out on God's best. And maybe that's all that you hear this morning. And you say, yeah, I have put up walls. I've either put up walls within the church or I'm so sick of what's going on in the world and everything that they're trying to push down our throats that I put walls up with unbelievers because I just don't want to deal with it anymore. Guys, our calling is to engage an unbelieving world. See, it's not that the Thessalonians had never been hurt before. They just weren't going to let that hurt shape their identity and God's purposes for them. And Paul exampled this, right? What if Paul said, okay, because of my hurt, and we can go back through that list again if you want to talk about hurt. He was stoned three times, he was thrown in prison, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was lied about. If anyone should have hurt, it should be Paul. Not that any of those things are okay. You can't justify any of that. But what did Paul say about his Jewish brethren? I would sacrifice my own faith if it meant that they would be saved. That didn't diminish how much he loved Jesus. It exampled his concern for his brothers. And where did Paul get his example from? The man who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For some of you, it's time to take down those walls. And I, 
For some of you, it's time to allow the Lord to remove those walls because they're getting in the way of you loving others well. And we're going to see in a second how important that is. That love is not love that we've generated. It's the love of Christ flowing through us to others. And when we say, how was Paul able to travel 10,000 miles and endure the things that he did? It's not because he was uniquely driven. It's not because, oh, that's just his personality. It's because the love of Christ was abounding in his own life. And he could not be constrained. He said, I, I can't help but know what's going on with you. I needed to know about your faith. So I gave up Timothy, who was my brother in Christ, who I loved deeply, who I needed, but I was willing to say, no, you go and you find out because I love you that much. This wasn't Paul's love for the church. This was Christ's love for the church reflected through Paul. And when we put up walls, we're saying, no, Jesus, your love for others is only going to go so far in my life because those people have hurt me. And Jesus says to us, do you know what they've done to me? And I still love them. 1 Thessalonians 3.11, Now may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct all our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Paul says, I know you are loving. I know that your faith abounds, but I want it to abound even more because none of us have arrived. And as we live on this earth, we will not see a moment where we have arrived when it comes to Christ's love. We can always be growing. We can always be abounding. Just as we do to you, Paul says, the same love we have for you, I want to see it abounding in your life to one another and to who? And to all. And guess what? There's no fine print there. It doesn't say in love to one another and to all, except for Jenny, who in sixth grade stole my bike. Or there's no disclaimer there. Just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Two words there, increase and abound. See, Paul's breaking into a prayer right now. And it's a prayer for the Thessalonian church. And I, I think Paul would be okay if we accepted this prayer for ourselves too. May our God and Father himself, he knows that this is only possible by the power of God. This is not a love that he's asking for that is even capable of existing apart from God. J.B. Lightfoot says in his commentary, this prayer is an outburst of earnest conviction which was uppermost in the apostle's mind because he knew the utter worthlessness of all human efforts without divine aid. Paul turns to God and he says, for this kind of love I know that God is the source and I pray that through him he would increase and abound your love. 
Notice what Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't say, God, I pray that you would end their persecution. God, I pray that you'd make their lives easier. God, I pray that you would give them health, wealth, and not that he doesn't pray for some of those things at times, but in this instance, he doesn't pray that their persecution would end. He says, the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do. I want Jesus to do in your lives what he has done in mine. And that is true leadership, isn't it? Guys, as parents, as church leaders, we cannot take those who we are leading someplace that we have never been. We can't say, oh, I want this for you, but I've never had it for me, and actually mean it. Paul says, I know what Jesus has done in my life. I know why I've traveled 10,000 miles and endured all the things that I've endured. It's because of the love of Christ flowing through me, and I want that for you all the more. Not that he would end your persecution, but that you would love him and love others more. He's going to echo this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, when he says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, do this even more. He says, you haven't arrived. You're doing a phenomenal job but always be growing and increasing and abounding. Because when we abound in the love of Christ, that's what leads to action. And that's what this chapter has been all about. Paul says, I was so concerned about you that I had to do something about it. And that's where the church needs to be, where we are so concerned about others that we need to do something about it. How many of us have watched a commercial of a starving child and you've been moved by it? And then the Suns game comes back on and that fades into the distance. And I'm not saying that we should be opening our checkbook specifically for that commercial, but we all can be moved. We can all hear about something and say, yeah, that's true. We can all see a need and say, man, I wish that need would be met. But it's another kind of love that's moved into action. I'm going to tell that person about Jesus. I'm going to meet that person's immediate need, not with strings attached, but because I care about them. See, the Christian walk, it's not about obligation. That's what, the, that's what religion tells you. It's about obligation. It's about the things you have to do or else you're going to make God mad. No, the Christian walk is about abundance. It's about the overflow of Christ's love in our lives. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ, what? Compels us. Because we judge this that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died 
for them and rose again. Paul says, when I think of the cross and what Christ has done for me, it compels me. And I will endure whatever I need to endure to make sure the same message gets out to the world. And finally, Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. The love of God, not our own love, His love. And what kind of love is this? It's a self-sacrificial kind of love. Let me, let me give you one quote, and I'll close with this. This quote reminded me of the quality of Jesus' love for us and the quality of love he wants us to have for others. This is what John Stott once wrote. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Right? That's our temptation every single day, that we would substitute ourselves in the place of God, that we would be the God of our own lives, that we would take control. That is the essence of sin. Do not eat from that tree. Enjoy all of my blessing. I want to live in perfect communion with you, but stay away from that tree. Oh, you must be holding out. I'll do what is right in my own eyes. That is the essence of sin man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims privileges that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's the quality of the love of God. He endured what he did not deserve so that we may have what we don't deserve. That's the love of Christ. And that's the same quality of love that he once displayed through us, through the power of his Spirit.